If you got your Bibles, take them and turn them to Acts chapter 1. Let me just say this. If you are used to being here, normally being here, the Scripture being up on the screen, we're going to read uh, two or three chunks of Scripture today, and so we'll not be on the screen because we're going to read them all to kind of at once. And so um, if you have your Bibles, you need to open those. If you have smartphone or something you want to look up the verse on on your Bible app or online, do that. You have it with you today because it won't be on the screen. And if you're reading along with me in a place that you can, like online or on your Bible app, I'll be in the Holman Christian Standard Bible, Holman Christian Standard Bible. So yesterday was the opening day, opening Saturday, first full day of college football. Now, how many of you are excited about that? Let's get you pumped up. All right. How many of you are angry about that because you lose spouse for a few days, a few weeks? All right. Or you're a Kentucky fan, whatever it may be. Vanderbilt, whatever. That was a cheap shot, wasn't it? How many of you don't care at all? Like, it doesn't bother me in the least, all right? How many of you were really excited about it, pumped up about it, excited about your team in this year, and they got ready for the first game, and they played their first game, I don't know, like maybe Thursday night, and it wasn't quite as exciting as you thought the game would be, and you're now you're concerned about your offensive line and your quarterback, whether they have what it needs to win the games that you think they should win this year. And this was the year you've been pointing to for like three years, and now you really don't know if this is the year you should have been pointing to for like three years. And so now you're concerned about your team, and you really don't know how to feel about the upcoming season. Anybody, anybody out there? There you go, Vol fans. Good to see you. All right. So, uh, here's what happened. Yesterday I did watch some college football. We, in between other stuff, Saturday kind of normal stuff, doing the yard and, uh, coming up here for a few minutes to help with our consignment sale. By the way, um, if you weren't here to help with consignment sale, um, there were several of our ladies and men who helped with consignment sale over the last few days and on a holiday weekend and, uh, I am so appreciative of the work that they do and what happens there. Uh, a lot of good things happen in the missions money from that. And so came up here just for a few minutes, and like nothing compared to what a lot of people did. Helped out with consignment sale. We had to get kids ready for a birthday party and some other stuff. But in the midst of all that, I did sit down and watch a little bit of college football. In the first game of the day, I found some inspiration in a guy that I don't know very well. I know of him. I mean, I don't know him personally, but I've heard of him a little bit. But he's really come into the national spotlight over the last couple of years because he has awakened a program that was never very good. In fact, I sat down to watch a game yesterday between a traditional powerhouse football program and a program that had not been good at all, really, until like the last year. Um, And while I was watching that game, they said something about this coach. Here's a picture of him. This is Tom Herman. He's the head coach of the University of Houston. I just thought it was fascinating because last year Houston had its best year in football in anyone can remember. It was really, really good. They lost one game last year by three points. That's it. They won more games than ever won as a program. They beat Florida State, a traditional power, in a bowl game at the end of the year And they came into this year with similarly high expectations. And so as they're talking through the game, I heard this twice. And I was listening to it while I was driving around a little bit. So I may have heard it on the radio and TV or heard it on TV twice. They said that Tom Herman made a decision last year after they were in the Peach Bowl. That's the game they were in, in Atlanta, Georgia. That if players were coming back for this year's team, they could not wear Peach Bowl gear. 
And he made them refer to last year's team, even if they were on it, as that team. That they could not say, we did a lot last year. He said, that was that team. We're a different team. And they said the reason he did that is because he was afraid that they would think they had arrived and he wanted them to do even more than they had done the previous year. I thought, that's fascinating, right? This is God, he, that was his first year as a head coach last year. He has the best start in the history of head coaches at Houston or almost any other program in America. And he said, we're going to forget all of it because we got bigger goals. And then I found my second source of inspiration from a place that really pains me to find it there. Okay? And I was watching a game last night, and something they said about the coaches really kind of made me think about today. And here are the coaches I'm talking about. It pains me to talk about these two guys, all right? Now, if you've been around very long, you know that I'm not a big Alabama fan, like, at all. This is Nick Saban and Lane Kiffin, who... Um, it may be the least liked football coach in America, but definitely in the state of Tennessee. Um, and they're coaching Alabama last night. I don't know if anybody saw the game, but they thoroughly whipped USC. Okay, thoroughly whipped. And so while they're doing that, I just found it interesting because they started talking about Nick Saban's tenure. And this is starting Nick Saban's 10th year as the coach of Alabama. Okay, And in those 10 years... They have won multiple SEC championships, multiple national championships. In fact, they showed a clip of Obama. You know, he meets with all the national championships. And Obama's been president at this point at seven years. This was last year. And he says, I've seen you guys four times at the White House. And after I got thro- thrown up in my mouth a little bit at that thought, that's amazing, right? I mean, I, I don't like Alabama as a team. I root against them at all possible times. But it's an impressive thing. Now, here's what was impressive to me, okay? And so they talk about that, and they come back. And then they talked about all the things he had done in the last five months to make his team better. Now, they won the national championship last year. And he wanted to make their team better. Another reason it resonated with me, he's starting his 10th year as coach of Alabama, okay? He became the coach of Alabama in 2007. I became the pastor of this church in 2007. So Nick Saban and I basically had the same last 10 years, basically, right? We had met with Obama, but it's been a, a listen, it's been a good run. Last 10 years have been uh, nine years and moving into our 10th year. It's been a good season for us as a congregation, as a church. I'm, I'm proud to tell people when they ask me, where, what, what are you doing? Where are you from now? And, and they'll say, you still? And I'm proud to say, I am still the pastor of First Baptist Church. And for outsiders that aren't around here, I say, good Let'sville. Right? When I, people are around here, like, I'm Goodlesville. That's where I am. All right? Like I've learned to run it together. I'm getting there. All right? And so I'm proud to be your pastor. I'm proud to be the pastor of this church. And we've had a great nine years. Great nine years. Lots of cool things happen. We're growing. Church is growing. A uh, number of people showing up are growing. Giving is growing. We've remodeled a building that needed to be remodeled. We've addressed some issues that need to be addressed. There's still stuff to do, but we've done a lot of really good stuff. The children's program downstairs is doing great. Our preschool program is growing and great. I mean, we're, we're about to have to build on a nursery wing just for the babies we've had in the last few months. I mean, we, we are, are coming. Like, we, we have great things happening. When I hear, you know, I, when I was at Center Kid and 
Um, they do time hopper, you know, Facebook does on this day in history. I, I looked and there was a picture from like five years ago of our children's group at Centricid. And they're great kids, awesome kids. They're still, all of them are still in our youth group. But when you look at it, it was like eight people total. It was like five or six kids and a couple of adults. In the last two years, we've had to take the bus and a van plus a vehicle. Like this year, and I don't know the numbers, but we were one of the largest groups. That came. We used to be that group, and this just gives you, that used to get somebody that was split with us. Like they would have a counselor that was our church and another church. We're now one of the largest churches there. That's not us. I'm just saying they see growth. Our youth ministry upstairs, what Jeff and David are doing, it's just phenomenal. It's awesome for me to see what's happening with the growth and development of our kids. See growth in young adults, new Sunday school classes starting. See an adult, uh, what, I don't know what to call the people that, no, they don't like being called middle-aged adults, but people that are not young and aren't old yet. So middle people, right? We're, like seeing my group, that's me, I'm that, all right? And so like this growth there, even seeing some growth in seniors. So great things are happening. But my goal is that for next, as we move forward, is that we wouldn't rest on the good things or think we've arrived or things are good now, but that we would strive for even greater things, even better things. This is what I saw in the scripture last week that we talked about. It's one of the most unbelievable scriptures in scripture for me, verses that I just go, I can't believe Jesus said that, but I believe it because he said it. It's in my Bible in red, and so I know that Jesus said this, and I believe this. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 14. I assure you, the one who believes in me, that's us, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, that's you. So he says, if you believe in me, this is you, will do the works that I do, the walking on water, the raising of the dead. Like, wait a minute, Jesus, what are you talking about? And he, or she, believers in me, will do even greater works than these. Because I'm going to the Father. And the idea is that Jesus is telling us we're going to do more. Yes, that's part of it. There are more of us than there were of Jesus. Jesus' ministry was basically in a small little part of the world and that his believers are now on every continent of the world where people exist. His followers are there. And so, yes, we're going to have more works. But it also means, and what Jesus also says there, is that our works will be greater in kind, in uh, impact. There will be greater works. I just wonder, what would it look like for us to have a church that's doing even greater. My prayer over the last week and my prayer for the next few weeks, and I'm going to ask you to join me in a, in a few minutes in a prayer that we're going to pray together as a congregation, is that we would have an even greater church. That above every affection, emotion, or passion, we seek God and God alone first. That God would open our eyes to the greatness of who he is and what he has done for us. That he would open our hearts to feel the mammoth weight of the needs of a lost and dying world right here around us and around the world. That we would abandon ourselves and our agendas both individually and as a church for the purpose of advancing his kingdom in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth where over a billion Billion people have never heard the name of Jesus. That God would use us to spark, that God would spark within us a movement of Him that would lead to people coming to know Jesus as their Savior, to lives being transformed, and the name of Jesus being placed above every name on the lips of people all around the world. I want something to stir within me and something to stir within us 
to do something even greater than just the good and great things we've done in the last nine years. This isn't new. This isn't a new problem or a new thought. I mean, it's been around for a long time. And we live in a world that's more distracted than ever it seems, but it's not a world that is different than when distractions happen for other people. I mean, people have always had distractions around them that could lead them away from following Jesus. In fact, I ran across a quote this week from a guy named Jonathan Edwards, who was the leader of the first great awakening in America. All right. How many of you ever heard of Jonathan Edwards? All right. Jonathan Edwards. Some of you may have heard of Jonathan Edwards because you had to read one of his sermons. I don't know if they still do that, but they did when I was in high school. You read one of his sermons in American literature, junior year, sinners in the hands of an angry God. Boy, doesn't that sound like a fun title? Like, we're going to put that up on, the, up on the sign outside. This week, our pastor preaches on how you sinners are in the hands of an angry God, right? But it helped to cause a revival to break out across the nation. First Great Awakening, 1730s and 1740s. And this is, was one of the things that sparked that discussion, was this quote. It's a little lengthy, so just stick with me. But listen. Our external delights... Our earthly pleasures, our ambition, and our reputation, our human relationships, for all of these things, our desires are eager, our appetites are strong, our love is warm and affectionate. When it comes to these things, our earthly pleasures, our ambition, our reputation, our human relationships, our hearts are tender and sensitive, deeply impressed, easily moved, much concerned, and greatly engaged. We are depressed at our losses, and we are excited and joyful about any worldly success or prosperity. But when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel. How heavy and hard our hearts. We can sit in here at the infinite height and length and breadth and love of God and Jesus Christ of his giving his infinitely dear son and yet sit cold and unmoved. If we're going to be excited about anything, shouldn't it be about our spiritual lives? Is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable and desirable in heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled. That we are not more emotionally affected in the church. Jonathan Edwards wasn't speaking to a generation that had to worry about the stuff that we have to worry about. He didn't have to talk about watching out for sports invading into your life as a passion. Or technology and phones. Or um, getting ahead in a corporate world. But that the desire of the human heart has always been to seek after those things that don't really matter. And to walk away from our God. So this is my prayer. And we're going to look at three passages today in Acts 1 and 2. And we're going to talk about this prayer at each portion of that. We're going to see the church literally forming before our eyes in Acts 1 and Acts chapter 2. This is my prayer for our church. This is my prayer for my life. And this is my prayer that I think we see happening answered in Acts 1 and 2. And that is, I'm asking God. To awaken our affections so that we obey his spirit and surrender to his mission. Obey his spirit. Surrender to his mission after he has awakened our affections.
Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1. We talked about this a little bit yesterday, or last Sunday. Um, we talked a little bit about this first passage. In fact, that's what we spent the sermon on. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on the first 11 verses of the book of Acts. I am going to read them, and I'm going to point out a couple of things here about God awakening our affections. Acts chapter 1, starting in verse 1, says this. I wrote the first narrative, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. After he given orders to the Holy Spirit, to the apostles he had chosen, and after he had suffered, he also presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs and appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While he was together with them, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. This, he said, is what you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? And he said, it's not for you to know times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he had said this, he was taken up as they were watching and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going, they were gazing into heaven. Suddenly two men in white clothes stood by them and they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into the heavens? This Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. What happens in Acts chapter 1 is this. The fire that has been building within them, the fire of seeing Jesus in his resurrection is being kindled, suddenly gets started to get a little bit more kindling puts on. It starts to get a little warmer. And what happens throughout the rest of the book of Acts is you see them basing their ministry upon a couple of things that we see in the first few verses of Acts. And it's awakening their affections for Jesus. And so the first pray that I am praying for an even greater church is that God would awaken our affections. The driving force behind the mission of the early church was Jesus. Not a program, not a project, not an institution, not a ministry, not an idea, but a person. Jesus. Jesus dwelling in them through the Holy Spirit, enabling them to accomplish their mission, Showing them who he is. We see it in the first 11 verses there. The first thing that they knew about Jesus was that he was alive again. That they were serving a risen Savior. It tells us that up there in verse 3. After he had suffered, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs. Appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. He told them over and over again. He showed up to them and said, I'm here. I'm alive. I'm, I, I want you to see me. I want you to know this is not just something where I'm just popping in for once and saying, okay, I'm done. I, you, don't, you don't have to, you don't have to worry anymore. Like he walked with them for 40 days proving he is alive. And the truth is, as a risen savior, it gives hope for those of us that are followers of Jesus. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but if there is no resurrection, then you have just another crucified man on a cross with no power to do anything about anything that's happening in your life. I mean, the cross, we sing about Jesus paid it all, and it is true that on the cross he paid for your sins and for mine. But if he did not rise from the grave, we would have never thought about that because he wouldn't have had the power to deliver us from the evil of sin and death. 
And these guys got it. They saw him alive. And they knew that if he had conquered death, then he had conquered the one thing that nobody could conquer. And he meant he was gone. If you read the whole book of Acts, you'll see that they are captivated by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Over and over and over again, they talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And here's the reason. It's because his resurrection meant that there was hope for them. Hey, can I tell you a secret real quick? Okay, You're going to die. You realize that, right? Now, I told that in the first service, and they all laughed because they like, we know, like soon. All right, now I'm just joking. It's a joke. It's a joke. All right. They did laugh, though. But we all are going to die, like some sooner than others, right? Don't point, don't show anybody, but some sooner than others, we're all going to die. And if, think about this, if there is no hope of resurrection after life, then that march towards our own death is depressing and without hope at all. Right? Can I tell you something? I'm 40 and a half. You know, like kids, like I'm three and a half. Like I'm 40 and a half. All right. And I'm on that. The good chance is I'm on the downside of that hill. Okay. And I know that the next 30 to 40 years of marching towards that, they don't have to be terrible. I mean, they're going to be good things, good moments, obviously. But just physically, it's not going to be the most fun. Things aren't going to work like they're supposed to work. Things are going to break down when they aren't supposed to break down. I'm going to have unexplainable pain. Like I understand that that is the descent upon which I am on. And for those of you that do not think that will happen to you, it will. And if all I could think about was I got 40 more years and then I'm done. And then it's over like nothing. That's depressing. But if. Jesus Christ has raised from the dead and I serve a risen Savior who tells me in Scripture that He is the first fruits, which means that after death I will be raised to life in Him. If that is my future, there is real hope. They base their lives on the fact that Jesus was alive. Now, here's what that also meant. It meant if they got killed for proclaiming Jesus, it really didn't matter. Because He's alive. And He's promised that they will be too. They lived their lives based on the affection of Jesus being alive. Secondly, he was an exalted Lord. He wasn't just a risen Savior. He's an exalted Lord. In verse 2, in verse 9, in verse 11, and then again, and we didn't read it, in verse 22, it talks about Jesus being taken up. The reason that was important for them is they were facing huge challenges and persecution for proclaiming who Jesus is. In just a couple of chapters, they're going to be standing before the same group of people that had put Jesus to death 50 days after Jesus had been put to death. And they're going to tell them, quit talking about Jesus or we're going to kill you or worse. I don't know what's worse than death. But they look at him, and I said this last week, they say, you do what you got to do. We got to keep preaching. The only reason they could keep preaching is because they knew they had a risen Savior, and they knew that their God had more authority than anybody on this earth. They were going to face important, huge 
challenges. He's a risen Savior. He's an exalted Lord. But He's also a coming King. He is coming again. Remember? He rises. They're looking up at the clouds. Mouths on the floor like, what just happened? And these guys come beside him and go, why do y'all keep looking up? And they're like, what do you mean why do we keep looking up? He just went up in the clouds. And they said, don't worry. The way he just came, the way he just went back to the Father, he's going to come again. And the promise of the New Testament is that Jesus is coming again. He could come at any moment. Man, it'd be great if he came this afternoon. He'd come at any moment. He may not come in my lifetime or he may come tomorrow, but I can tell you this, he is coming again. And at some point, that sky's going to split and on a white horse is going to come our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords, and he's going to come back to get his church. And there are two things that have to happen in our hearts and our minds that we have to ask the question of him. First of all, am I a part of the family of God? Have I asked Jesus Christ to save me? Have I accepted his gift of salvation? Am I a part of that crew that is going to join him when he comes again? And secondly, if I am, if that's who I am, is what I'm doing today going to make a difference in eternity when he comes back? How much of your life is spent doing things that won't make any difference in eternity? Their affections were awakened because they were uh, talking about this King Jesus who was a risen Savior, an exalted Lord, a coming King, that meant no matter what came after them, they had a God who would take care of them. And that meant their allegiance and their devotion went to him above anything else. God, awaken our affections for the risen Savior, the exalted King, and the coming Lord. Passion for the kingdom of God comes from a passion for the King. And I'm praying that we will get a new vision and a new love of our Jesus. God, awaken our affections so that we may obey your Spirit. Look what happens in chapter 2. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. So when the day of Pentecost had arrived, now listen, Pentecost was a festival. This isn't a special Pentecost day. We don't have Pentecost because the Spirit came on Pentecost. Pentecost happened before. It just meant 50 days after Passover. So this was a day that was already scheduled on the calendar as a day of celebration. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place. About 120 of them. So not much smaller or bigger than what we have right here in this room. Suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. When this sound occurred, a crowd came together, was confused, because each one heard them speaking in his own language, and they were astounded and amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that each of us can hear in our own native language? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking the magnificent acts of God in our own languages. They were all 
astounded and perplexed, saying to none another, what could this be? What happens in in Acts chapter 2 is the promise of what Jesus said in Acts chapter 1. The Holy Spirit of God invades the place. And as the Spirit of God invades the place, He suddenly enables them to do things they could not do before. I'm praying that we will have a new affection for the Lord Jesus Christ that will enable us to obey the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God showed up, they were able to experience God's presence in a way they had never experienced God's presence before. They were able to obey God's commands in a way that they'd never been able to obey God's commands before. They were able to fulfill God's purpose in a way they'd never been able to fulfill God's purpose before. They experienced God's presence in the Old Testament. Anytime God is around, a couple of things usually accompany Him. One was this mighty rushing wind. Think about it in the book of Ezekiel when they're looking out on a valley of dry bones and he says, I will send my wind and it will give you sinews and give you all the ligaments and joints and you will make a body rise again. What's happening in Acts chapter 2 is that the breath of God and the Holy Spirit is entering into the place and they are made alive again. Think about the fire of God. It symbolized the presence of God. You look in Exodus when the Israelites are coming out of Egypt and they look for a way to see God's presence. And at night he sends them a fire that guides their way. When they would take their sacrifices into the temple, the fire that would consume the sacrifice symbolized the presence of God accepting what was happening and showing them that he was with them. And in this moment, as they're sitting in that room and they're waiting for whatever's going to happen to happen, suddenly a mighty rushing wind sound. Now, it doesn't say that the wind blew the place apart. It just says it sounded like it. They didn't understand it except it sounded like a mighty rushing wind. And then flames come into that place. In the book of Exodus, which, by the way, the Pentecost happened To celebrate when Moses is on Mount Sinai and the law is given. Fifty days after the Passover. In the book of Exodus it says that the fire on the mountain showed up and it meant you could not approach God. And he brings down a law for the people that they cannot keep. And when you get to the New Testament and you get to this moment, the fire is no longer on the mountain distant from them. The fire is now touching each individual person there saying... My presence is here among you and the law has been written on your hearts and it is no longer a law that you cannot keep because Jesus has kept it. It is grace and forgiveness for you that follow my son Jesus. What's also interesting about that day, just this is a side note, this little extra biblical knowledge for you, all right? That day, do you remember what happened when Moses came down with the tablets? What's happening down at the bottom? I remember? They're worshiping What? Golden calf, right? And he comes down and he says, what's going on here? And they're like, all our gold jumped into a fire and came out of the cow. That's what they say. That's what they say. Literally, if you go back, like, Aaron, what happened here? I don't know. Everybody threw their gold away. They all ended up in the fire and this cow jumped out and we said, "Woo, that must be something. I'm like, what are you talking about, right? Anybody remember what happens that day? What happens to the Israelites? A lot of them die. Anybody remember how many? Right around 3,000. We're jumping ahead a little bit, but anybody remember what happens at the end of Peter talking on the day of Pentecost? How many people are added to the family that day? 3,000. And the Bible's good. Y'all know that? Like 3,000 destroyed when they come down from the mountain because the law has not been kept. 3,000 added to the people of God on the day 
that they celebrate and announce Jesus Christ as Savior. Some of y'all don't get that, but that's good stuff right there. All right. So the Holy Spirit comes and it enables them to feel the presence of God and accomplish the purpose of God. Listen, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. I know I say that every week, but I really mean it here. All right. One of my favorite verses in all of Scripture is right here. Because remember in Acts 1a, I just think about those guys sitting there and Jesus says, hey, I got a mission for you real quick. I just need you to tell people about me. All right, cool. You're my witnesses. Good. Not a problem. All right. I need you to do that in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and everywhere that anybody lives on the face of the earth. Like, whoa, wait, dude, like, that's a lot. Like, I don't think you have ever, I think you've overestimated how good we are to do that. And so I don't know about you, but I know that me, like, I know they were waiting, I know they were praying, but I also imagine that in their minds, while they're waiting and while they're praying for 10 days, while Jesus is telling them what to do, that they're in there thinking about, now, how are we going to do that? Well, you know what? I mean, I guess we just start traveling. I said, we go tell people here, we go there. And in their mind, they're thinking, how are we going to get to the ends of the earth? We're just a few guys. I love this. Look at verse 5 of chapter 2. There were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from where? Where are they from? Every nation. If you want to, you can put this out to the side. You can write in your Bible. It's okay to do that. Draw a line to it. Write the phrase, ends of the earth. You see what happened there? Day one of the Spirit showing up. They get the gospel to the ends of the earth because there are people living that are there from the ends of the earth. A seemingly impossible task is accomplished in a few minutes. Now, in case we doubt that, they list all the places there. Asia. They're in Asia. Like Asia is Asia. Like China. They're there from Rome. You know what Rome is? Rome at this time is the center of the world and it touches every part of the known world at that moment. And they say we hear them speaking in our own language. It freaked people out. As it would you. Now just imagine, they're about the same number of us, maybe a few more in here now, as there were in that room then. And imagine that we're all here, we're at prayer meeting, we're Sunday morning, it is Labor Day weekend, we are the faithful few that aren't going all over the place for Labor Day. We're here, we're celebrating, we're worshiping, and suddenly it sounds like a freight train just runs through this place. What in the world? And then we look out and fire is all in the place. Somebody's trying to get the fire extinguisher. Somebody's saying, why aren't the sprinklers on? And then suddenly we see it touching people's tongues. And as they're touching tongues, Michael Richards starts speaking in Swahili. And Steve Moore starts to go Portuguese on us. And even though he's been to Brazil a couple of times, he can't speak Portuguese. Mark Stevens starts talking in French. Right? What, what are y'all going to think? You're going to think, what in, what in the world is going on, right? Like, what is happening here? Now, here's what I love about this. Did God give them those languages just to be a cool trick? Why did he give it to them? Because there were people from every language there. And as they begin to speak, people are like, wait a minute, they're talking to us. Anybody ever been in a foreign country where you didn't understand the language at all, Right? And you run into somebody that speaks English and it's like someone has literally put a warm blanket around you and like given you a hug. You're like, oh, you speak English? It's awesome, right? I've told this story before, I think, but when we were in Brazil one time, Gary Taylor, who's the guy that helps direct the whole thing, 
and I woke up on a Sunday morning. We didn't have church. They don't do church in Brazil a lot of times until Sunday night. We didn't have anything to do on Sunday morning. No, we're not going to do any construction or anything. And we're kind of hanging around at breakfast. And we realized that the British Open is currently on TV somewhere. Now, we're in Brazil. British Open's over in England. Time difference the way it is. We know it's like right now is the final round. And that's back when this guy named Tiger Woods was okay. And like we were trying to, let's see if we can watch it. So we walked down the street by, the, by our hotel and every place we could, we stopped in and asked them. But we didn't have a clue how to ask them, can we watch the American golf tournament with Tiger Woods in it? And that's what we discovered very quickly. People in Brazil didn't care about that stuff. At least that's what we could figure out because they didn't understand us. And we literally went to like 10 different places. And the last place we went to, we had tried. Gary's been to Brazil like for 25 years. He still doesn't know anything in the language much. Like he just communicates through hand signals and a couple of words, right? And so we, we figure, we, we've struck out. We get to the last place. I don't know what kind of establishment it was. I, I couldn't read the sign. It may not have been a place a pastor should have been in. But we walk in. And I just see the guy, and Gary starts with his Portuguese trying to figure it out. And the guy goes, um, I speak English. And oh, great. So we tell him, like, we're looking for the golf tournament, the British Open, Tiger Woods. And he goes, oh, nobody cares about that around here. It's not on any TV. Like, we could have learned that like a while back. But I remember just the moment of like, oh, you speak English. I love Brazil, but I also love when you get back to America and you hand your passport to that customs agent in Miami, and they say, welcome back in perfect English, you're like, oh, we're back home, right? Because there's a warmth about your own language. And God gave these people special ability to speak in this one-time moment in a discernible language, and the people around them, it felt like a warm blanket to hear the gospel for the first time in their own language with a little hillbilly accent. Because that's how they knew they were Galileans, is that little hillbilly accent. Well, bless your heart. Now, here's the thing. We want our affection to grow for Jesus so that we obey his spirit, allow the spirit to fill us so that we can be used by God to spread the gospel. And listen, when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Spirit of God indwells your body. So we're not asking the Spirit of God to come. We're not at Pentecost saying we need the Spirit of God to come. What we're asking for is an understanding of the Spirit's already here presence and a filling of the Spirit in a supernatural way. There have been special moments in history when God's Spirit has shown up and moved in ways that are unexplainable except for the Spirit of God. I read this week about something that happened in 1806. A kid named Samuel Mills and four other guys were, were uh, students at Ivy League schools. And they were praying one day when a storm began to hit. Now, this is a different time. This is 1806, so it's not like an industrialized city all around. And as they're running away, they find a haystack, and they get up under the haystack, and they begin to pray in that haystack while the storm passes over for God to move on their campuses. And within a year, Yale, Dartmouth, and Princeton had between a third and half of their students saved for the first time. And the first overseas missionaries in the history of America were sent out out of that revival. A hundred years later in Wales, a guy named Evan Roberts was reading about that, and he preached about it with 17 people in his midst 
And he prayed for revival and preached about revival. And those 17 people committed to seeing God move in a special way. And within three months, 100,000 people had come to faith. And they started something called the Layman's Missionary Movement because they weren't preachers. They weren't ministers. They were just people from church. And they went to the nations. Indonesia saw Christianity explode three times what it had been. Um, India saw Christianity for a time grow at 17 times the rate of Hindu. God, awaken our affections so that we obey your spirit and surrender to your mission. Look at the last part of chapter 2, and then we're done. Verse 42 through 47. So, by the way, verse 41 is where it tells us that 3,000 people were added to them. Just a cool reference to the Exodus, how that works. Verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That fear came over everyone and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. That's not fear like I'm scared. That's like fear, awe at the presence and the power of God. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as anyone had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple complex and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with a joyful and humble attitude, praising God and having favor with all the people And every day the Lord added to them those who were being saved. When the Lord ignites your affections and you obey the Spirit and surrender to His mission, He will move in a mighty way. They spoke boldly about the grace and the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ. They cared sacrificially for those that were part of their congregation. They worshipped wholeheartedly. When he talks about breaking the bread and meeting together, that was the center of their worship. They prayed desperately for their friends, for their neighbors, for their people around them, for themselves, for each other. And they grew exponentially. The bottom line is, the Spirit of God wants to move in Goodlettsville, and White House, and Greenbrier, and Ridgetop, and Hendersonville, and Portland, and Madison. He wants to move. He wants to what happened in Acts 1 and 2 to happen here. Now, not the same way, but he wants people to come to faith in him. And he wants to happen it here, our state, our nation, and our world. And I want to be part of it. Over the last few weeks, really the last few months, I've just been praying that God would help us to move to the next step. To be an even greater church for the glory of the name of God and for the sake of His kingdom. And I don't know where those opportunities are going to come, but I am confident that they are going to come. I can tell you that even in the last week, Jeff and I went and we had the opportunity to meet with the principals at both Goodlesville Elementary and Goodlesville Middle School and this is the only question we asked. We went in there, we observed, we talked, and the principals, we sat down with them. And I didn't know what to expect. I mean, you, you know, we realized we have separation of church and state in this country. And, you know, school, you hear the thing, churches aren't real welcome in schools and you, all that kind of stuff. Walked in, sat down with the principal. And, I, and Jeff can tell you, the question that I asked both principals kind of starting off was, well, how can we help you? How can we help you? How can we help your students? How can we help your teachers? How can we help you? I got four pages of notes. They were not hesitant to talk. So we're going to be talking about that. How do we help? Ways that we can help their students. Ways can we help their teachers. Ways can we make an impact. I mean, Gillespie Elementary is literally across the street and middle schools within walking distance. Elementary school has 50 homeless kids 
as a part of that school. 50. In a school that has 350 to 400 students total. I mean, you just do the math. That's one out of seven of their students is homeless. And those of you that have been to Mason's Motel and done ministry at Mason's Motel, that's not considered homeless. And they got a lot of Mason's kids. We left there. My heart literally was stirred and breaking for things that we heard. The middle school, man, it's beautiful on the inside. Man, it is. The this, this city metro school, they did a great job with that school. But walking around, we also saw the need for support for kids. And we witnessed things that made us realize that the task is immense. This week, you know, those of you on Twitter know this. If you're not on Twitter, you don't know this. Somebody can mention you on Twitter and you haven't been part of a conversation and suddenly you get yanked into a conversation. And so I'm sitting around the other day and my phone dings. Uh, T. Michael O'Neill, Michael O'Neill, those who don't know, grew up in this church, is a, on staff at a church in Cummings, Georgia, uh, mentioned you in replying to John Decker. I was like, what are Johnny Decker and Michael O'Neill talking about me for? Like, I'm not in this conversation, you know? And so I click on it like you would to say, what are they talking about me? And this is what I see. We need to talk to 268 Pastor, that's my Twitter handle, about getting FBC involved with the IMB in London. And Johnny and uh, Michael have been talking about the desperate need for believers to take the gospel to London. And in the midst of a five-tweet conversation, it got to the point that Michael said, it's time to talk about going, which he's told me before, and we haven't. But I don't want to be a church that says, listen, we're already in Brazil. We're already, we're already doing Lynch. We're already doing L.A. I want to be a church that if opportunities present themselves, that we can do even greater things elsewhere. So here's what I'm going to ask you to do over the next few weeks. I want to ask you to pray a prayer with me. And it's the prayer that's been the three main points of this sermon. You got a pen? I want you to write this down somewhere, somewhere you'll know where it is. And I'm going to ask you as a church to daily pray this prayer. You don't pray anything else over the next three weeks. I want you to pray this prayer. You can use words. You don't have to use my words. You don't have to. And, and please, please don't go home and go in the morning, wake up, pull out your hand, go, God, awaken our affection so that we obey your spirit, surrender your mission, done for the day. Good. Brother Law told me to do it. I did it. Don't say it until it's the prayer of your heart. God, awaken our affections so that we obey your spirit and surrender to your mission. Don't try to figure out what that means. Don't come up with a 15 step process for the church to be that. Just pray the prayer and let God move. If you're one of our college kids, we've got a few college kids out here. I ask that you pray this for our church, and then I ask that you pray this for your campus. If you're one of our kids that are not college, but you're in high school or middle school, pray this for our church. Pray this for your school. Wherever you work, pray this for our church. Pray this for your workplace. Pray this for our church and pray this for your family. God, awaken our affections so that we obey your spirit and surrender to your mission. All right? Let's pray together.